This morning we are continuing the series that we began back in September in the Gospel of Mark. And um, as we explore this incredible Gospel, we're discovering so many things that are coming awake and being reawakened within us. Typically, I use PowerPoint, um, but this morning I'm not. So if you're waiting for PowerPoint, you will be disappointed. But in your bulletin, you'll find a, um, an insert about our Minneapolis campus, all kinds of stuff that's going on there, but also on the reverse side is a page for sermon notes. And so I would like to encourage you to uh, take advantage of that and uh, those things that the Spirit prompts into your heart, take them and uh, use them. Let them dig into your soul. So, verse 18 of Mark chapter 2. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Now, Let me ask you a simple question. What's the context here? What, where, where are we located right now in terms of the text? What, what's going on? This just doesn't, you know, the text here doesn't just sort of spring out of nothingness. There's something going on. What, what's happening? Where are we at? Come on. No, thank you, but. Good, good answer, but not the one I'm looking for. What's the, what's the context? Where, what, what's happening right now? Where is Jesus? He's at Levi's house. He's at Matthew's house. Okay? And so he's in Capernaum. He's at Levi. And Levi is what? Who, what what's Levi's occupation? He's, he's a tax collector. Okay? So last week we looked at the text right preceding what we're looking at this morning, verse 13 to 17, and we, we noted how Jesus sees us, calls us, saves us, and transforms us. That was the process that was going on in Levi, the tax collector. Now, There's three, actually there's four groups of people who are present as we step into our text this morning. Jesus is there at Levi, the tax collector's house, and and Levi, being a tax collector, is one of the outcasts of society, and so he's gathered all the rest of his outcast friends because he doesn't have anybody else. So it's the gathering of the outcasts, and there's Jesus right in the center of them. Now, in the room with him, there at the feast that's going on at Levi's house, and he's put out a great spread, are Jesus' disciples, those who have been following after him. But there's also a couple of other groups of people who are sort of hanging outside of the windows, looking in at what's going on. And that would be John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees. And they are fasting. 
Now, fasting, in terms of the Old Testament, as was already pointed out here by Jeremy, fasting was required to take place one day of the year, and that was on the Day of Atonement, when you were fasting in a penitential manner, repenting of your sins. That was the one day that you were required to fast from sunup to sundown. But the Pharisees had established a sort of a, a religious tradition as part of their external expression or their expression of, of holiness and, and desire to walk in the law. They had a regular practice of fasting every Monday and Thursday as well. So John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees are watching what's going on here with Jesus and the tax collectors and the disciples of Jesus. And then there's actually a fifth group of people, and those are the people who are simply have been attracted by what Jesus has been doing, and they're sort of watching this unfold, and they come and they say to Jesus, they ask Him, well, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Why are those guys not like you or like them? Why are they different? What and, 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 and sort of embedded somewhere in there is sort of this whole sense of, and, and, and this is sort of this ongoing contention that happens, is there's this sort of overlay of somehow, you know, your guys really aren't as spiritual as these guys are. Why aren't, why aren't they fasting? And Jesus answered, now, here's an answer, folks. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. But right now, the bridegroom is with them. Now, Jesus speaks here in language that may be somewhat veiled to them as of yet. I mean, they don't have the whole picture yet. But Jesus is saying something here that is incredibly important for those who are all standing around and for us to hear. He's saying, while the bridegroom is present. Now, if there's a bridegroom, by definition, there also needs to be what? A bride. And who's the bride? Jesus is already subverting everything here. He's turning everything upside down and inside out as He's here feasting with a bunch of outcasts 
and a motley crew of disciples, and all of the chief really religious folks are over here, and they're saying, why, why aren't yours fasting like ours? Why don't your disciples follow the religious rituals that we have established? The pattern of holiness. And Jesus said, well, when the bridegroom's present, you feast, you don't fast. You see, the cultural dynamics here are simply this. When you have a wedding, the bride and groom don't go off on a honeymoon. No. They stay right there with their family and friends. And for the next week, everybody in town, everybody who's come, spends the whole week just feasting and celebrating together. It was so encouraging after the first service this morning when Ken and Sharon Holmgren came to me and said that after Paul's wedding next Friday night, their home is open the next week. They will have food and drink available for any who want to come for the next whole week. Isn't that great? What's that? And Sam has the key. Thank you, Sam. All right. Wonderful. Time will come when the bridegroom is gone. Then you'll fast. But right now, Jesus, I mean, he's, I'm here! <laughs> Jesus is saying, I'm here. The bridegroom is here. Now, Jesus goes on to tell a couple of parables. Um, they're just very short, very simple. And very well known. Verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And... No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Now we're going to come back to those pictures in just a moment, but we're going to go on for a moment and complete chapter 2 here because the next passage is yet another, another illustration of these two parables, just as the fasting and feasting was. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. Now what they do, you know, they grab the grain and then they do this in their hands and, and, and get the, the grain seeds out to eat. And the Pharisees said to him, now, do you ever wonder, I mean, like, what did the Pharisees do all the time? 
I mean, all they were doing was following Jesus around. You know? The religious police here, checking things out, seeing what he's doing, what's he up to now? The Pharisees said, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? He goes right back to the word, 1 Samuel 21. In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. (laughs) All right. Now we're scrambling some eggs. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You see, we'll talk about this more next week, but they, they had set up so many rules and regulations around the Sabbath that it was no longer a day of, of rest and restoration. It was a day of anxiety and fear about what might I be doing wrong now? See, the religion of man is all about what I ought not to be doing. Whereas relationship with Jesus is all about bringing release and and rest and restoring and life-giving. About giving life. So Jesus is declaring and announcing something that, you know, think, things, things aren't the same anymore. It's a new day. The kingdom of God is here. The bridegroom has come. The Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath. I don't know if any of you have noticed, but um, this Tuesday there's an election. Did anybody, has anybody heard about that? Anybody realize that, that this Tuesday is going to be voting? Okay. Now, in this election cycle, there has been one word from every political perspective and background that has been the word that is on everyone's lips. Now, altogether, what would that one word be? Well, they've all done a really good job, all right? Change. Well, what Jesus is describing and talking about 
here is true change. Deep change. Transformational change. See, change is not something new from this political season. Change is an ongoing reality of life. One of our foundational principles here is the change is normal, continual, and expected. You know, we live in a, in a, you know, um, a geographic place where meteorologic, meteorologically change is normal, continual, and expected. If you don't like the weather today, just wait a few hours. It'll change. I don't know if you knew, but one of the biological definitions of death is an organism that's no longer changing. Your body is constantly changing. There, in your body, there are about 100 trillion cells. In the course of this service alone, millions, in fact, hundreds of millions of your cells will have died during this time. And some of you feel them dying. <laughs> in fact, right now, each and every one of you are carrying around Five pounds of dead flesh. If we could only choose where to take it off from, right? Every day you're getting rid of five pounds of dead flesh. So why are we not all just wasting away to nothing? Because your body is constantly Dividing, multiplying, cells are dividing and multiplying, creating new cells. For many of us, unfortunately, the new ones outnumber the old ones going away. Skin replaces itself every month. Your stomach lining replaces itself every five days. Your liver every six weeks. Your skeleton every three months. Your cheek cells replace themselves three times in a single day. Within, all right, within the course of five years, if you are a man, in five years, your entire body will be brand new. This is really good news for you wives. Every five years, you've got a brand new husband. <laughs> Ladies, for you, every seven years, your cells completely change. 
couple of things that I want to reflect on here as we kind of bring this into where you and I are living now. The first thing I, I, I just, we, we need to understand is that God is always doing something new. He is always doing something new. Yes, He is unchangeable, unshakable, unstoppable. That's what you are. But in the midst of... And here's the incredible divine tension. In the midst of His not changing, He's always changing everything. Because He's ever creating and recreating, He is always doing something new. Behold! Isaiah says, Behold! Look up! I'm doing a new thing! Do you perceive it? Do you see? I'm doing something new. But here's a key about that newness that often gets lost again in the midst of kind of our limited vision and understanding and perception. And that is, is that the new thing that he's doing is actually more radical than we think it is. And we've been talking about radical making radical shifts. And here's, here's kind of the heart of, of, I think, why God has brought us into Mark is because He has told us that He's doing something more than just strategic, more than something just sort of out here. He's after radical change and shift. And remind me again, what, does, what, what is at the heart of what it means to be radical? What does radical mean? It means to what? Return to the root. So when he is doing something new, he is actually returning us back to the reality of what he created and intended in the first place. Fasting was not intended to be simply a religious exercise done over here in order to gain points on some divine scoreboard. Fasting was to express a longing and a desire for the Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm here! Right with you. The Sabbath wasn't about tying you up and binding you up with all kinds of hoops and things that you got to jump through and do. The Sabbath is there for your refreshment. And renewing. So Jesus takes and He comes back with His changes and returns to the root. That's what He wants to do in you and me.
We want to, you know, we want, we want instant, simple solutions. Pastor, just tell me, you know, the, the couple things that I got to do. The ones that are not too painful. I, I just, I can't, you know, you're not asking really, you know. Sorry. He's going for the roots of your heart and life. A good way, a, a, a sort of a good grid to ask yourself, is this congruent with, with the new thing that God is doing in my life or in the, you know, just as you're discerning things in your life? Is it rooted in the gospel of Jesus? Does it properly reflect scriptural principles? Is it related to, to what the men and women of God who have followed Him through the ages have discovered and discerned and, and learned about His ways and His character? And is it relevant to today and now? Because He's doing new stuff. But it's the new thing that's... Here it is again. It's the, the new ancient path. <laughs> and so how are we going to respond? Well, good question. How do we respond? A lot of people just want to put a little patch. Pastor, just give me a patch. And I'm just going to put it on, I'm going to put it on the, you know, this is my favorite shirt. I can't let go. Of, I can't let go of this shirt, Pastor. This is the way I've been all my life. It's so comfortable. Y'all got those shirts? I got those shirts. You know the ones you pull out when you're sick. Okay. All right. And some people just want to put a little patch on the whole. I'm just going to put a little Jesus patch. He's going to mess with your life, people. (laughs) Just put the little patch on and it'll make it all better. No! He's alive! You can't put that on the old stuff. Just going to pour the new wine in my... This is my good... You know, I've got all of my... I got it all figured out. I got the charts and graphs and everything. You know? I got it all put together. He comes along. You try to pour new wine into those old heart structures. Uh Uh-uh. He bursts out. There's no way. You get so brittle... Luke, in his Gospel, talking about the same passage, he adds one more line to what Jesus says here, and it is, And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says, the old is better. Ooh. Careful, Pastor. Oh, the old is better. Remember in the old days? 
Remember how it used to be? Can we just go back to the good old days? I love this story. How many of you, I know there, there was a lot of them in the first service. Anybody here is a nurse? Who's a nurse? Nurses? All right, we got a few of you. All right, good. Nurses' duties in 1887. The good old days. In addition to caring for your 50 patients, each nurse will follow these regulations. One, daily sweep and mop the floors of your ward. Dust the patient's furniture and window sills. Two, maintain an even temperature in your ward by bringing in a scuttle of coal for the day's business. Three, light is important to observe the patient's condition. Therefore, each day fill kerosene lamps, clean chimneys, and trim wicks. Wash the windows once a week. Number four, the nurse's notes are important in aiding the physician's work. Make your pens carefully. You may whittle nubs to your individual taste. Each nurse on day duty will report every day at 7 a.m. and leave at 8 p.m. except for on the Sabbath, on which day you will be off from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Number six, graduate nurses in good standing with the director of nurses will be giving, given an evening off each week for courting purposes or two evenings a week if you go regularly to church. Number seven, each nurse should lay aside from each payday a goodly sum of her earnings for her benefits during her declining years so that she will not become a burden. For example, if you earn $30 a month, you should set aside 15 Number eight, any nurse who smokes, uses liquor in any form, gets her hair done at a beauty shop, or frequents dance halls, will give the director of nurses good reason to suspect her worth, intentions, and integrity. Number nine, the last one, the nurse who performs her labors and serves her patients and doctors faithfully and without fault for a period of five years will be given an increase by the hospital administration of five cents a day, providing there are no hospital debts that are outstanding. Ah, the good old days. <laughs> Can we go back to the good old days? You can't go back. And the old wine is not better than the new wine. It's just the taste you're used to. I don't know all of what God is doing right now all over the earth in His church. Sometimes I have a hard time figuring out what He's doing in my own life, much less yours. But I do know this. He wants to do a new thing. He has announced a new day. Has come. And if there are places in my heart or yours 
or ours that have become brittle, unyielding, have hardened, He wants to pour in oil and make us pliable and resilient again. You know, there is, there is a, a, a more significant virtue than being stable. <laughs> that virtue is being resilient. And there's a more, you know, significant virtue than just your security in the familiar. It's your flexibility and pliability to the work of the Spirit of God in your life now. And some of you feel like you are absolutely, you've just got all, you've, you've got it all, you put all the walls up, it's all right there. And let me tell you, those walls are a prison. Get out of prison now. Jesus has got to get out of jail free card. to set you free. I'm going to close with a story. It's actually not a story as much as it is a testimony. I met some folks when I was in South Asia a few years ago visiting Steve and Sharon. Turns out these folks, I went to college with them and I didn't even know it. They're over there um, working in, believe me, an environment that none of us even remotely live or work in. And they, since I was there, they've sent me their newsletters over the years. And um, their most recent newsletter, I just feel compelled to share it. It's not long, but this piece. It's entitled, Relentless Ambiguity. <laughs> Imagine being contacted by your beloved and well-trusted uncle. He informs you he has purchased a mansion for you, but the catch is you need to move in immediately to take possession. Knowing his character, you begin the process of packing up, selling your current home, mobilizing your family, and disconnecting from the life you've been living. You pile all your worldly goods into a van, then you and your family and your household employees set off together. Some of you in this room have done something pretty similar to this, okay? This is not all that far from your experience. It's a long way... And there's no way to go back to the home which was yours for so much of your life. When you finally arrive, you're enthusiastic, full of anticipation for the promised palace. The children pile out and you eagerly open the gate only to find that someone is living in your promised house. You pull out your cell phone and instantly call your uncle. Hey, this house you gave me, it's occupied. What are we supposed to do? He answers, not to worry. Just put up a couple of tents in the backyard. It'll be in your possession before too long. What would your reaction be? Just think. This is exactly what happened to Abraham. God called him, promised him a land of his own for his children and his children's children. But when he obeyed and followed God's leading, he ended up camping out in someone else's backyard for the rest of his life. Where did we get the mistaken idea that if we follow God's leading 
Our way would be clear and obstacles would melt away. A life of biblical faith is characterized by relentless ambiguity. We never quite know whether God will come through or not. He asks us to wait, to trust, and hope. If there's no risk that the promise might not come true, then we aren't living in faith. Sometimes when living day to day in the city they live in, it seems doubtful that God's promise will be fulfilled. We see obstacles so clearly. Unjust judges, crooked courts, hard hearts, self-righteous co-workers, spiritual blindness in the nicest of people, deceit, blackmail, corruption, poverty, and the distraction of good causes. We haven't even begun to mention our own human weakness, selfishness, busyness. But God did not ask us to return home. Rather, He told us to set up our tents and trust Him. We're trusting Him right here, right now, right in the backyard of an occupied home. The promise seems at risk. And in the middle of this risk, we hear the Holy Spirit saying, you must trust and rely on Me alone. God calls us to live on the edge of risks. Risk of failure, risk of betrayal, risk of grief, risk of disappointment. God is here with us. He is there with you, walking along the edge of your cliff with you. And there is no safer, no better place for us and you to be. So, you're on the edge of the cliff? He's there. He's with you. You're not alone. Are you willing for true change? Radical change? Deep change? Real change? Transformational change? Hmm. It starts with surrendering and submitting your life to Him. Come on up, worship team, please. Thank you. We're going to close with a song that It really is a fasting song. Hungry. If you see, we're living in that in-between place between when the bridegroom came and when the bridegroom comes again and we find ourselves in that awkward in-between place. But we're longing for Him. And if you're longing for Him this morning, and if you need new wine, if you need a new wine skin, you need a new shirt, not that old one that you've been having in your closet or drawer for the last 20 years. The Lord is doing a new thing even this day. I'm just going to open up the altar. If you are hungry and you want to come to Him today, I invite you to come. If we could just stand to our feet, that will help folks get out and around you. Then I'll give a benediction prayer in a minute. Let's pray this prayer. And as we do, the Spirit of the Lord is just touched in some area of your life this morning. It's a new day. You can't go back. It's gone. You can't erase all of the things. You can't erase the words. You can't erase the deeds. You can't erase all of that. But you can go forward. It's a new day. 
Let Him plow up the ground of your heart with repentance, with surrender, with submission. Invite Him to come. Change you now. Hungry, I come to You, Lord. Come on, the altar's open. Here we go.